we read them with the awe and the wonder that always should fill us when we come to this sacred account of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because we must read these words, if we will read them at all with the eyes of our souls, that is, by faith, let us first ask God by his Spirit to illumine our hearts, the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word to begin with. Father in heaven, send him, we pray, for we need him. We need him as much now to understand your word and to have our hearts moved and shaped and molded by it, as uh, Dr. Luke did when he had spoken with Mary and with the shepherds and with other eyewitnesses and recorded this history by your Holy Spirit moving and directing him. So, Father, send him, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, we'll read the, first, the uh, 20 verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. What an amazing thing, truly astonishing thing we've just read, brothers and sisters. From the beginning of this account to the end, we see all over it the fingerprints of God. From the providential direction of all this history, God's sovereign orchestration of the census to bring this family to Bethlehem at just exactly this time, 
to the divine fulfillment of ancient prophecy, the virgin birth, to the almighty power of God displayed, calling on none less than the heavenly host to carry this news of the birth of the Son. All of this history is nothing less, really, than astounding. Any one of those wonderful truths I've just listed in this narrative, in fact, bear on its own enough glory for a lifetime of meditation. And yet, on the opposite side of that coin, there are those parts of this account which we find less than amazing, less than wonderful, and not really very breathtaking at all. In fact, we might find them sort of baffling. This is the birth of the Son of God. This is the world's Redeemer, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. But look, look at this, where are they? They go from one insignificant podunk place to another. From Nazareth, Joseph takes Mary with child to Bethlehem. From one nowhere place to another nowhere place, as far as the world is concerned. And then comes the time for the baby to be born, and she brings forth her newborn son and places him in in a feed trough, in a manger. And then, as if this history can't sink any lower, we come to verse 8. There were shepherds. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Who cares? Who cares if there's some shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their sheep. So what? They do that all the time. Leave them out in the field, keeping watch over their sheep. Don't bother them, we would say to ourselves, if we were writing this history or editing this history. You and I would break out our erasers here and start carefully excising details from the story. We would not have Joseph come to some jerkwater village on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. No, we would, we would have him come and bring Mary right into the court of Rome. We wouldn't have baby Jesus laid in a feed trough, but in a velvet-lined, diamond-studded cradle. And most of all, even if we left every other detail intact, we certainly would not have angels making announcements of the birth of the Son of God to shepherds out in a field. We would have the news brought to nobles and kings and important rulers, to Caesar Augustus, but certainly not to some Nobody, country, bumpkin, shepherds. The shepherds, you see, were not only the nobodies of that culture. They were the despised of that culture. Someone has compared them to street people today. And there were in the same country street people huddled over a heating grate by night passing around cheap wine in a paper sack. That might be close, but I like, 
another comparison which has been made between shepherds and modern-day car mechanics. Not all car mechanics, mind you, but those car mechanics who work in those shops, which everyone suspects of chicanery, of stealing from the company, from the customers by making unnecessary repairs or by charging for repairs that were never in fact made. Shepherds were the low lives whom no one can trust. When shepherds came around, you kept your eyes on your possessions. And if you had sheep of your own, before they left or before they disappeared from your view, you counted your sheep very carefully. Shepherds were a despised group, folk whom proper people scorned and avoided. And religiously speaking, they could never be considered fit for entering the temple, even the outer court, because they were constantly and incessantly ceremonially unclean because of their trade. They were dirty, smelly men who spent their days and nights at the back end of dirty, smelly sheep. Yet on the night of Christ's birth, when God the Son came to earth, he didn't announce it to nobles or kings. He did not go to Caesar's palace with news of the Lord's advent. He didn't even go to the prim and proper religious folk who had come from Jerusalem to be registered in Bethlehem. No, the scripture says there were shepherds. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Of all the details of this history, perhaps none is so surprising or as amazing to us as this one at the very top of the guest list for the Lord's birth. In fact, alone on that guest list that night were the despised, lowly shepherds who are in and of themselves absolutely nothing. And it's precisely in that detail that we learn our most fundamental truth about Christmas and about the birth of the Son of God in human flesh we learn the grace of Christmas. What grace? Well, what is grace? Grace is what God shows to any sinner whom he calls to himself to be his child. It is his favor. His favor full and free. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor which God sheds upon those souls whom he's going to bring into his sheep pen, into his fold. Grace is what the entire Bible is about. Given us by the God of 
all grace, the Bible calls him. It is about the spirit of grace, the scripture says, about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, about the gospel, the good news of God's grace. The entire scripture replete with this grace that has come to us in and through Jesus Christ, along with a summons to receive it. To receive that grace, to know it, to experience, to be saved by that grace, and to live then every day of our lives by that same grace. Grace is what lies at the very center of our entire faith. Grace is God's acting in spontaneous goodness to save sinners, God loving the unlovely, God making covenant with us. As we saw again this morning, making covenant with us, pardoning our sins, accepting our persons, revealing himself to us, moving us to respond to that grace, leading us ultimately into the full enjoyment and knowledge of himself and overcoming every single obstacle that threatens to keep us from him, knocking them down to bring us to himself. By His grace, God saves us from sin and evil. Grace makes sinners into saints. He makes unhappy and sad people whole and happy in the knowledge of their Maker. Grace is a wonder indeed. To those who sense their corruption and their demerit, that is not just your lack of merit, but our demerit before God and the reality of God's justice and his wrath against us because of our sin. The very existence of grace is staggering, staggering to our hearts and our minds. And then, wonder of wonders, the willingness of God himself to pay that price that had to be paid to shed that grace upon you and me, that God the Son should leave the glories of his heavenly home to take on human flesh, to be born in a stable, to be laid in a manger, and eventually hung on the cross. It comes as little surprise that those who have caught a glimpse of this grace have described it in their hymns as nothing less than amazing. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Or love so amazing, so divine. And of course, those familiar lines, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But I'm running ahead of myself. Let's look more closely at this grace. The grace that found the shepherds that day and the grace that has found you and found me. First, notice that God's grace is a specifically directed grace. 
specifically directed. God, by his grace, chooses whom he will save and whom he will bring to a knowledge of himself. It was God's directed grace that brought idolatrous Abraham, not his neighbors, brought Abraham to be justified by faith, leaving the rest to perish in their sin. It was God's directed grace that saved publicans and sinners, but left religious Pharisees. Jesus said this. He said, let them alone. It was God's directed grace that pinpointed, in all of that area, pinpointed a bunch of smelly shepherds to receive the message that night, to pierce their darkness with its light while leaving the religious people, the church-going people, to die in their sin. What is God's coming to the shepherds but his grace? He's saying loudly and clearly once again as he did so long ago to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And to whom has he been gracious? Wonder with me, dear flock, wonder at the unworthiness and the unlikeliness of the objects of his grace through the years. The monster Manasseh, who barbarically burned his children in Molech's fire and filled Jerusalem's streets with innocent blood. By God's grace, he makes him a child and an heir of glory. Saul, breathing murder, slaughter of anyone who bowed the knee to Christ, hatred for the lambs and the sheep of God, even as he plunges with might and main to Damascus with diabolical intent for the destruction of the church of God and the wiping out of the body of Christ once for all, By his grace, God drives him to his knees that himself, to bringing him to himself that he might join, that Saul, Saul, might join that glorious company of the apostles and martyrs. Or the Corinthians who were shamefully wicked to a proverb, so filled with violence and injustice, so much a reproach to the human race, by their abominable vices. And yet, even these slaves of sensuality are sanctified, justified. And those who were the burden of earth become the joy of heaven and the delight of the angels. How? By grace. By God's grace. Do you want to know the greatest wonder of grace to me? 
It's not wicked Manasseh. It's not bloodthirsty Saul. It's not those flagitious Corinthians. The greatest wonder of grace to me is standing right here in front of you in this pulpit that I should be saved by his grace. And if you are among the company of the redeemed this morning who've been saved from the wrath of God by God's grace, then for you, the real wonder of grace is that you should find yourself captured by that grace, that amazing grace about which we sing so much in this house of worship, that amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Second, God's grace is a directed, I mean, it is a directed grace, but it's also a seeking grace, by which I mean God's grace seeks, actively seeks out those whom he is saving by his grace and sovereignly brings them into that grace. Tell me, what were those shepherds thinking about? What were they thinking before God's grace came and took hold of them? Were they seeking God? Were they, were they searching for Christ? No. It was God's grace that set them to searching. It was after God found them that they went to find him to Bethlehem, to see this thing that has happened, verse 15, which the Lord has made known to us. We Christians, we sometimes operate under this delusion that it was we who found out God. Well, make no mistake, my brothers and sisters, we must Find him. We must search for God until we find him, the scripture says. And those who seek him with all of their heart, God promises in his word, will find him. But what sets us searching in the first place? It's grace. It's sovereignly directed, seeking grace that seeks us out first. What does Paul say we were in Ephesians in our sins? Asleep in our sins? In a coma in our sins? Lame in our sins? Dead in our sins. Dead in our sins. Out in the field, the benighted field of our darkness. That's where God's grace came and found us while we were lost. While we were dead, he found us. He made us alive. While we were blind, he gave us sight. While we were dead, he gave us life. And even if we didn't know it at the time, now as we look back, It's plain to see, as the hymn writer puts it, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest are the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, affectionately known as the Prince of Preachers. Look back 
and his own salvation too. And well, I can remember the manner in which I learned the doctrines of grace, he writes, in a single instant. Born, as all of us are by nature, an Arminian, by which he meant someone who thinks that the ultimate cause of anyone's salvation lies in his or her decision and not in a choice that God made before the foundation of the world. Born an Arminian, Spurgeon says, I still believe the old things I heard continually from the pulpit and did not see the grace of God. I remember sitting one day in a house of God and hearing a sermon as dry as possible and as worthless as all such sermons are, when a thought struck my mind. How came I to be converted? I prayed, I thought. Then I thought, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How did I come to read the scriptures? Why, I did read them, and what led me to that? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. That he was the author of faith. And then the whole doctrine opened up to me from which I have not departed. Christian, if you are truly a Christian here this morning, it's not because you sought the Lord first. I'm sorry if I'm disabusing you of some delusion of yours at this moment. You're not a Christian because you sought God first. You're a Christian because God sought you first. The seeking grace of God, the same grace that sought out stinky shepherds, sought out you and me. Third, the sovereign grace of God is also peace-giving grace. Verse 14, and on earth peace among those with whom he is Pleased, the angelic host calls out in military cadence. Peace, true peace, true shalom. The peace of knowing that I am right with God. That peace that passes all understanding the scripture talks about. Of finding myself at peace with him, with God. I am at peace indeed. Come wind, come weather, Come life, come death, come comfort, come affliction. There is nothing, nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing. It is true peace precisely because it's peace that is founded upon the rock of the grace, of the sovereign grace of God. No wonder those shepherds' feet were hardly hitting the ground as they left that place and made their way back to the sheep, praising God and glorifying Him. They knew now 
these shepherds did. They knew better than ever what scoundrels they had been, for they had seen themselves in that glorious light. But even more, for the first time in their lives, they had true peace because of the salvation that was already theirs that night through this babe, this child of Mary, who is Christ the Lord. The shepherds came to that stable empty-handed. They had nothing to bring, but they left with more than all the world can possibly contain. And like the shepherds, multitudes have come saying the same thing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And what peace they have. What peace who come to him this way to receive that peace that only he by his grace gives. Which brings me to the fourth point. Because God's grace is sovereign grace, it is also free. It is free grace. If anything at all must be crystal clear to us, as we look over, peer over the shoulders of those shepherds at that baby in that manger, it is this. They could not do this. We could never have done this, not in a million years. We, we couldn't even conceive such a plan, much less have carried it out, that God the Son should forsake the courts of everlasting day and choose with us a darksome mortal house of clay. That he should come to earth as a child born for the purpose of dying to save us. Such genius. The genius of this plan could only be divine and only the divine could possibly carry it out. While you and I were rushing headlong to hell and content to go that way, God sent his son into the world so that we, while we were yet sinners, would be saved by Christ dying for us. Look with me, brothers and sisters. Look at that baby's face right now, the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, and see him who left the splendors of heaven to put on the rags of your and my mortality. Look at the shepherds. Look with them upon the face of the creator of the universe now a creature. The Almighty God must have his head gently laid and supported by his mother's arm. What in the world could have required such a sacrifice as this? This errand, 
that would take him from heaven to the cross via a Bethlehem stall. It's you. It's you. It is payment for your sin and mine. What kind of debt must that be that required the prince of life humbly to go to death, even death on the cross to pay? What kind of debt must that be? How shall we measure it? I tell you, the debt that you and I Oh, the debt of our sin can only be measured by the distance between that Bethlehem stall and the throne of heaven itself. And why that grace must be free is exactly that. That's why Scripture says that it is by grace you are saved through faith in him and not by your works, lest anyone should boast And how better to demonstrate that fact than by first coming to us. By first going to them in the story. By choosing these outcasts, these these nobodies, this, this group of stinky, unclean shepherds out in the field at night who had nothing to bring to Jesus, nothing but their sin. God declares to you and to me in this way and to all the world that no one is too dirty, no one too sinful, no one too lowly and despised to be saved by his grace. And as a matter of fact, it's precisely to such as those that God's grace comes. Amen.